Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back. In today's show, we're going to cover a variety of different topics. We're going to keep it dense. We're going to talk about our beliefs about money and where do they come from. We're going to talk about the different biases and how they impact others and even ourselves. The difference between becoming wealthy and staying wealthy. We're going to talk about where and how to be pessimistic versus optimistic. And finally, we're going to conclude with reviewing the Dunning-Kruger effect and how it's robbed millions of people of wealth. So I hope your 2021 is off to a great start. Mine certainly is. Recently, Dave DeLapp and I have spent the last couple of months working on our Certified Exit Planning Advisor designation, otherwise known as a SEPA. And so the reason that we did that and just recently successfully completed this certification is that we spend our days helping business owners and real estate owners create clarity and confidence around both their business and financial decisions. Many of these conversations are around value acceleration. So what is value acceleration? Well, it's a process that asks and answers all the business, personal, financial, legal, and tax questions that are involved in a privately owned business. It includes contingency planning for illnesses, burnout, divorce, death, and so on. Its purpose is to maximize the value of business at the time of exit, minimize taxes, and ensure our clients are able to accomplish all of their personal and financial goals at the end of the process. At the highest level, the process seeks to identify protect, build, harvest, and manage both personal and professional wealth. Within the greater value acceleration framework, we're spending more and more time helping clients around harvesting as well as managing wealth. So it's true with just about anything. The more you do something through experience, you begin to observe predictable patterns. And one of the predictable questions that inevitably pops up as we execute the harvesting of wealth from private company stock or real estate is the predictable question of what do you do after 90 plus percent of your balance sheet that was once private company stock or the real estate occupied by that business is now liquid? What do we do when the metaphorical golden goose, otherwise known as your business, is sold and you're left with a finite number of eggs? The question provokes a conversation that's really centered around one's belief about money, investments, and financial risk management. One of the best resources I've encountered on this particular topic is a book by Morgan Housel called The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. I'll link to it in the show notes for those that are interested. So Housel begins his book with what percentage of your beliefs about money are almost entirely informed by your personal experience? If you're like me, it's a shocking amount. And it's interesting, right? My personal experience might make up 0.0000001% of what's actually happened in the world with money, and yet I drastically overweight my own lived experiences versus the rigorously investigated empirical data. It's shockingly easy 
to get caught up in an overconfidence cycle, which prevents us from doubting what we know and to continue to be curious about what we don't. In earlier episodes, we've had numerous scientists on the show. We've had psychologists or wealth psychologists on the show. We've had a neuroscientist on the show. We've looked for like what psychology and science has to say about how we think about money and how we make decisions. We've looked at some of the observable biases that have been inventoried by behavioral scientists. Some of those would include confirmation bias, regret aversion, overconfidence bias, binary bias or disposition effect bias, kind of viewing our investments merely as winners and losers versus kind of do they serve a mission or purpose within a greater strategy. There's familiarity bias, hindsight bias, self-attribution bias. This is a great one. So successful outcomes are from my skill and bad outcomes are from external factors. There's trend chasing. So there's a long list of biases. And if this is a topic of interest to you, I'll go ahead and link to a white paper that our firm wrote as it pertains to cognitive biases in our financial business decisions. Well worth checking out. With all that said, beware of the informal, I'm not biased bias. That's one certainly I'm susceptible to. It's easier to recognize the flaws in other people's thinking while assuming that we're immune to it. What I think is interesting is even Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel laureate in behavioral finance, the godfather of the whole subject, knew that he was influenced by these invisible biases, even though he helped discover them. Knowing what you don't know is wisdom. And it actually turns out, according to the evidence, that smart people are even more likely to fall into the I'm not biased bias. I find the following dichotomy to be truly fascinating, that being good at thinking can actually make us worse at rethinking. And in a world that's ever-changing, rethinking and being open-minded might be a very important skill set for ongoing success. So let's circle back to the beginning. This idea that our financial decisions, our financial convictions are often informed heavily and overweighted by our own experiences and our respective values. So if that's true, our decisions can actually look a little crazy to a third-party observer. But most of us aren't really crazy. We're just making different decisions based upon different data sets. So let's unpack that a little bit more tangibly. Like, how does individual experiences impact beliefs about money? So people that experienced the Great Depression clearly made financial decisions differently for the rest of their life. However, let's look at an American that was born in 1970. They watched the S&P 500 increase tenfold adjusted for inflation during their teens and 20s, a highly impressionable period of their life. That's a spectacular return that clearly influences the way that they think about money and investments. However, yet another American that was born in the 1950s saw the same exact S&P 500 literally go nowhere during the same time frame, adjusted for inflation during their teens and 20s. Let's look at a different place in the world. Australia went nearly 30 years without a recession. That inevitably influenced the way that Australians made financial decisions and their beliefs about money, investments, and financial risk management. So if both our intuition as well as the empirical data helps us understand that individual risk tolerance is highly dependent upon our personal history, is there a more insightful way or objective way that we can make financial decisions rather than just our personal history? Absolutely. So let's start to break down this complicated topic about psychology and our financial decisions. However, let's approach the conversation scientifically, certainly not as a profession, but more as a frame of mind. Let's think of scientific thinking as a form of thinking that favors humility over pride, doubt over certainty, curiosity 
overclosure. If we can think more scientifically in terms of frame of mind or thinking, we start to rethink our thinking and might discover some new insights. So let's start with a very simple question. Is getting wealthy different than staying wealthy? Does it rely upon different skills, different thinking, different approaches? I believe it does. In its most simple level, a wealth equation could look like your income minus your consumption equals your wealth. And so for that season of life where we're accumulating, where we're growing a business, where we're growing our real estate portfolio, that wealth equation is consistent and predictable. However, if we sell a business, if we sell a piece of real estate, now all of a sudden there's a finite amount of eggs and our production or income looks a little bit different. Often our consumption remains unchanged. And so getting wealthy is often a different skill set and a different mindset than staying wealthy. Staying wealthy typically involves some combination of frugality and paranoia. So let's have some fun. Let's take advantage of our ability to see other people's mistakes and biases easier than it is to see our own. We're going to look at some different examples here. So there was an ESPN documentary called Broke. It went out a handful of years ago. And essentially what the movie indicated is that within about two years of retirement, 78% of former NFL players have gone bankrupt or under financial stress. You know, let's look at some other data from the National Endowment of Financial Education, as well as some information published by the Washington Post. It said that 70% of people who win the lottery go broke within a few years. We could spend the next couple of hours talking about celebrities that have gone broke, but you know, Michael Jackson, for example, he passed away in 2009, was in over $400 million in debt. Those are all very public examples of wealth that has been squandered. But maybe you know some private owners that successfully grew a business and exited only to suffer from what's often referred to as founder syndrome and subsequently squander their wealth. In his book, Morgan Housel points out that people that stay wealthy typically save like a pessimist, but invest like an optimist. That is both interesting and in my experience, true. It got me thinking about researcher Jim Collins, author as well, good to great, great by choice, built to last, so on. His research found that top CEOs were paranoid. Productively paranoid was the phrase that he used. Essentially, the only mistakes that we can learn from are the ones that we actually survive. So it was the leaders who staved off decline and navigated turbulence and assumed that conditions can unexpectedly change violently and quickly. They obsessively asked the question, what if? And by preparing ahead of time, building reserves, preserving a margin of safety, bounding risk, and honing in on their disciplines in good times and bad, they were able to handle the disruptions from a position of strength and flexibility, and that helped inform or power their 10x performance. I believe this insight is true, and it applies to staying wealthy as well. You can't assume tomorrow will be the same as today. The only certainty about the future is uncertainty. You can't take financial survival for granted. You can't assume that yesterday's success will automatically translate into tomorrow's good fortune. Sometimes becoming wealthy can make us feel like staying wealthy is inevitable. Certainly, this is an easy thing to observe in sometimes second generation and certainly third generation wealth. Andrew Carnegie is credited with the quote, concentration with investment can create tremendous wealth, but diversification will preserve it. After a sudden wealth event, more than huge investment returns, a wealthy family should really focus on becoming financially unbreakable. If you can become financially unbreakable, you'll harness what Albert Einstein famously called the eighth wonder of the world, 
compound interest. Let's think of one of the wealthiest people in the world, Warren Buffett. It's pretty incredible to look at how he accumulated his wealth. It illustrates the value of compound interest as well as anything out there. You hit this tipping point. So for example, in terms of Buffett's wealth, $81 billion of his roughly $85 billion net worth actually happened after his 65th birthday. Our brains simply struggle to calculate how exponential returns, such as compound interest, actually can positively impact our finances. I believe that strategic, tax-savvy financial planning is a critical tool to the preservation of wealth, but is far too often taken for granted. Dwight Eisenhower said, planning is everything, the plan is nothing. The only certainty about the future is uncertainty. So strategic financial plan enables us to have a smart money philosophy, a plan, essentially a strategy to ensure that whenever and wherever you need the money, for whatever reason, there's always a smart place to get it. Strategic tax savvy financial planning provides the framework to change and adapt quickly. It creates perspectives that enable us to minimize not just your annual tax bill, but your cumulative lifetime taxes, and even often reducing the tax bill of future generations. A well-built plan supports adaptability, resilience, and ultimately optionality, which is mission critical to supporting long-term sustained wealth. So if positive paranoia plays a role in the preservation of wealth and a strategic tax-savvy financial plan is an important tool or framework to preserving wealth, what's the role of optimism? How does optimism complement that paranoia? Well, the late Hans Rowling, he's an author and scientist since passed away, he talks about optimism in one of the most beautiful and original ways I've encountered, specifically in his book, Factfulness. It's loaded with spectacular insight. I'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes below. But he says, there's no room for facts when our minds are occupied by fear. Man, is that more true now than ever? I mean, if we look at the headlines, we look at the media, and there's so much to be afraid of. There's no shortage of fear right now. He also says the world cannot be understood without numbers, but the world cannot be understood by numbers alone. Rosling was a Swedish physician, and so he was asked about acquiring a fact-based worldview and the role that media played in it. And he said, we shouldn't expect the media to provide us with a fact-based worldview any more than you would expect it to be reasonable to use a set of holiday pictures of Berlin as your GPS system to help you navigate around the city. I think that's really interesting. What's the role that the media currently plays in your economic and financial anxieties and convictions? And should it? So in pursuit of a fact-based worldview about finance and investments, let's look at the last 170 years here in the United States. Obviously, the past doesn't always predict the future, but it's a reasonable place to start in pursuit of a fact-based worldview. Over the last 170 years, the U.S. has increased its standard of living by over 20-fold. However, let's just look at some of the things that the country endured during those last 170 years and 20-fold improvement of standard of living. 1.3 million people died while fighting nine different wars. 99.9% of companies that were created subsequently went out of business. Four U.S. presidents were assassinated. 375,000 Americans died during a prior flu pandemic. There have been 33 recessions that cumulatively have lasted over 48 years. The stock market has fallen more than 10%, 103 times. Stocks lost a third of their value over 12 times. Inflation has exceeded 7% 20 times over the last 170 years. This time is different. 
is the most infamous four words in finance. Though there's always a hint of truth, it can often be super misleading. The media headlines are always scary. They take advantage of fear, uncertainty, doubt, and greed to captivate us. They're paid for our attention, not for its accuracy. While being prepared for the certainty of uncertainty, people that maintain their wealth have optimism that markets work, that prices are fair, and that global capitalism will ultimately enable money to move to where it's treated best. As Morgan Household puts it, they save like a pessimist, but invest like an optimist. Well, as we begin to wrap up this episode, I wanted to share a quote that actually inspired this final section. A great challenge of life is knowing enough to think you're right, but not knowing enough to know you're wrong. I thought that this quote was incredibly thought-provoking, and it sent me on a research treasure hunt, ultimately discovering the Dunning-Kruger effect. Essentially, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias that shows up most often when somebody pushes past no knowledge to a little bit of knowledge. The less knowledge or the less intelligent we are about a particular domain, the more it seems that we overestimate our actual intelligence in that domain theme. We're actually hardwired to be overconfident. It's fascinating. So the original study was published back in 1999, but its origin or inspiration I think is even more entertaining. The original study, the Dunning-Kruger study, was published in 99, but inspired by a 1995 bank robber. MacArthur Wheeler is apparently the guy's name, and he robbed multiple banks while his face was covered with lemon juice. He was convinced that the chemical properties within lemon juice would make something invisible to surveillance cameras. Obviously, his strongly held beliefs were misinformed. His brief foray into chemistry led him to an incredibly wrong conclusion. So his Dunning-Kruger effect was ultimately the inspiration for the study that has been repeated over and over again or demonstrated in multiple different studies subsequently. So though this study originally was published in 99, it's clearly not a new concept. We can look throughout history and feel or observe references to it. Mark Twain talks about it in his quote, it ain't so much the things that people don't know that gets them in trouble in this world as much as it's the things that people know that ain't so. He's saying the same thing as the earlier quote, knowing enough to think you're right, but not knowing enough to know you're wrong. Because creating wealth is different than preserving wealth, the opportunity for the Dunning-Kruger effect to show up is extreme. It also gets me thinking, what are some of the things that I think are true today that simply are not? I was recently talking with our CEO and goal planning for 2021 and some things that I tossed out as goals for, for the year as I wrestle with these concepts personally are, you know, what are some of the new specific beliefs that I can discover in 21 that I didn't think were true in 20? What's the role of questions in the conversations that I have day in and day out? What's the role of being open-minded day in and day out? Ray Dalio famously said, if you don't look back at yourself and think, wow, how stupid I was a year ago then you must not have learned a whole lot in the last year. And so as we think about 2021, as we deal with all the inevitable change and adversity, maybe a year of growth for you, both personally and professionally and certainly financially, and excited to wrestle with you through the remainder of the year as we learn and grow together. So until we do it again, be well.